to do. I'm going to give a talk on topic that we'll all encounter primary care, and I have a keen interest in because I do endoscopy. Uh, reflux typically is physiologic. All of this reflux is short-lived. It's buffered by saliva down there and clear by esophageal peristalsis. Um, it's generally asymptomatic, and it rarely occurs in sleep if it's physiologic. But pathologic reflux is associated with symptoms and it's associated with mucosal injury. So to define GERD, it is a pathologic reflux that causes troublesome symptoms or associated complications, such as erosion, strictures, Barrett's esophagus. Some people call that Barrett's esophagitis. You see that term on the PATH report, or even Barrett's leading to adenocarcinoma. Often includes nocturnal episodes, you have a loss of normal function of the lower esophageal sphincter, and it's worsened by numerous dietary items and lifestyle issues. It's clinically manifest by heartburn, which is otherwise known as pyrosis. Anybody looks in your medical dictionary, and acid regurgitation. Those two symptoms kind of define the typical GERD uh, symptoms, and less commonly, also, it can be uh, dysphagia. You know, heartburn is typically retrosternal burning. We all know what that is or have had all of this problem with experience that everybody's going to probably experience in their lifetime, more so in pregnancy. Regurgitation is defined as the perception of a flow of reflux gastric content into the mouth. Patients typically describe it as a bitter fluid, maybe little chunks of food in there. Dysphagia, I want you to uh, get a good history when a patient describes swallowing difficulty. It can result from chronic acid reflux, fibrosis of the distal esophagus, and or an esophageal dysmotility. So when they say the patient has solid dysphagia, it's basically when you're uh, eating a solid. What are the typical foods like we had today? Uh, chunk of chicken. <laughs> Chunky chicken. Chunky chicken. That sticks in the throat. Commonly, it gets stuck and they have to sometimes go down and take it out or push it through. So solid dysphagia is uh, something that needs to be moved on right away. How about if a patient just says, man, I can't even drink sometimes. I cannot get liquid down. What's causing that? Just throw it out there. Not so common. They would have the, the progressive solid dysphagia, but a liquid dysphagia anxiety, right. spasm. So you're not getting anything through there. So if you, rarely you'll see a person where I've heard of it. I used to have a partner that had esophageal spasm. He said he couldn't handle his own saliva and he had to just lean over and just let it draw it down. Because it would trigger hypersalivation. Not that can't get anything down and it's just filling up and he had to regurgitate or just let his, until it passed, you know. So that's liquid dysphagia. It's not gonna be necessarily a mechanical obstruction. It's gonna be esophageal dysmotility, achalasia, or DES, uh, diffuse esophageal uh, spasm. And then pill dysphagia, uh, that is typically gonna be, um, well, it's pretty common actually. So don't get fooled in that. 
So depending on the size of the tablet, the, the texture of the tablet, if it's rough, smooth, et cetera, up to 40% of patients that take medications complain that they have difficulty getting it down. And sometimes it's because they take a handful of them. Uh, other times it's just a horse pill. You've heard that term. I just I can't take that horse pill. Those calcium tablets are too bad, big and chalky. Uh, so that, if it's not associated with a food solid dysphagia, I'm not as, that's not a true dysphagia that is worrisome for a stricture. And um, pill esophagitis, if it happens, is going to be hung up on the pill, whatever it is, like usually uh, tetracycline, is that what you're going to say? Or potassium, they will get hung up in a Schatzky ring or other higher stricture or wherever it's at, and then uh, cause a local toxic effect. Dinophagia, I've just seen it rarely with severe esophagitis or to uh, a viral esophagitis this one girl had. Uh, GERD can also cause extra esophageal symptoms, including chest pain, water, brash, globus, nausea, cough, and hoarseness. We'll go through those. The chest pain can mimic CAD and angina and resolves either spontaneously or with so in, the, in the hospital, a lot of times we'll give a GI cocktail, particularly if it's a younger person. If you're in the clinic and you've got a 20, 30 year old, probably okay, but if you're in the 40s, uh, give that as a, maybe a diagnostic tool, but you really wanna get them on their way to do a treadmill to uh, an MPS to make sure they don't have coronary artery disease. Um, uh, chest pain uh, that's related is usually postprandial, awakens patients from sleep and makes be exacerbated by emotional stress, just like angina. Water brash, that terminology is kind of hypersalivation that you get where you vomit. Anybody's had that? Mouthful saliva, that's what it is. Uh, that can cause by or you can have a globus sensation. Simply a constant perception of a lump in the throat. Uh, you can swallow, double swallow. Can't get rid of that globus sensation. Uh, there's evidence that it's, it's really not linked to GERD, but you know, that's the question. And one study suggests that globus is associated with that hypertensive upper esophageal sphincter rather than reflux. So in the esophagus itself, there's a band of muscle the upper esophageal sphincter, and there's also lower esophageal sphincter. And it's just a band of muscle. Most of these patients have this idea that there's a valve, there's a flap down there, right at the bottom of their esophagus. There's not a flap, it's just a band of muscle in the esophagus. I tell them, look, it's supposed to stay closed like this. When the food bolus comes down, it opens up transiently and closes. It's supposed to stay closed. And that's what the LES does. Nausea is also uh, can be it's infrequently reported, but can occur. Should be considered in patients with otherwise unexplained nausea. And in one study of unexplained refractory nausea, 25% cleared with PPI therapy. Let's jump to erosive esophagitis. And uh, this is the outcome of chronic acid reflux into the distal esophagus. What I really didn't re realize is that it's not going to be in the mid esophagus. It's not going to be Cervical esophagus, it's always just down at the junction, the GE junction. Uh, so now, 
Erosive esophagitis is the subset of patients with GERD who have endoscopic evidence of inflammation. So I can look at it and I can tell that it's inflamed. And then if it's biopsied, also there'll be acute inflammatory cells there or chronic. And then there's basal cell hyperplasia to a pathologist. That means there's reparative uh, processes going on to heal that esophagitis. And um, you all, you've heard of these LA grade classification of esophagitis, but you probably ought to memorize it. It's not hard. The grade A is less than five millimeters and it does not bridge between these. Grade B, it's more than five millimeters in length. And again, no bridging going on. C, there's bridging between these erosions. That makes it C. And then if it's less than 75%, it distinguishes it from that, which is more than 75%. We call moderately severe grade C and severe grade D. So this is, you'll, you'll hear more about the C and D as we go along. It's honestly, it's, it's kind of an art. You almost have to see it in real time to discern if it's A, B, or C. D, it's pretty obvious. It's just terrible. And nerd, does anybody know what nerd is? You probably have to be a GI nerd to know what nerd is. <laughs> it's not erosive reflux disease. So it's a subset of GERD who have reflux symptoms without endoscopic esophagitis. You can't eyeball and say they've got esophagitis, but yet they've got symptoms of esophagitis. And ideally, this is done two to four weeks after they've been off of PPI therapy so that the yield is higher when you actually do the diagnostic study. I kind of take issue with that because I, I really don't want patients to feel bad. And if I know that their PPI helped them, it makes no sense to stop it for four weeks and do a scope. So I, I personally, my personal practice is not necessarily take them off. Depends on how bad it is. If they, they want to go off, that's, that's fine. And we can treat them with liquid metastasis for their intermittent recovery. Then esophageal hypersensitivity is a subset of NERD patients who have heartburn with physiologic reflux by pH monitoring. A Bravo um, device is one that's put in there endoscopically uh, just above the GE junction that measures reflux of acid. So it's, an, it's a pH monitor. And um, in the next picture, I'll show you what that looks like. Actually, I'll jump to that. Yeah. Sorry, I have a question about that. So like in Cerner, when you type in like the diagnosis of curve, uh, it always pops up like GERD with esophagitis, GERD without esophagitis, or just like. Yes. So if they've never had a scope, do you just put down GERD and then you only put down with or without after the scope? You mean in your diagnosis yeah. scope? Yeah. I put down, I usually put chronic GERD okay. in patients that have uh, responded to PPI, so I feel comfortable in the diagnosis. Okay. But you, you cannot say erosive versus non erosive unless they've had a scope. Yeah. Right. So that's that probe. It's detached, stays there for about two weeks, and it sloughs off and falls off. And then functional heartburn is the subset of nerd patients without symptom reflux correlation, meaning they have heartburn, but they can't prove that they have reflux on the pH or the impedance of the probe. 
Now let's talk about what is impedance. Uh, okay. So with the impedance probe, they have to wear this catheter strapped to their face uh, for 24 hours. It goes down a catheter on the left there with different openings. It's a multi-channel uh, sensor. Impedance is a, it's a uh, electrical uh, measurement. When water or refluxes comes up into the esophagus, that conducts electricity better than when it's not there. The electricity is kind of going along the mucosa. When you have water in there, it conducts it faster. And so the impedance goes down as the food bolus is present. And if you have it at several different layers, then you can tell which direction the flow of the liquid is going up or coming down. And you can tell down at the bottom there, it says a pH. You can tell when it's a pH above four is, is what's supposed to be normally. And when you get acid refluxing up in there, then it's gonna go dip down to pH. 2.5 or something like that. And it'll stay there until the esophagus via peristalsis clears it and or swallow with saliva to buffer it. So this kind of thing, if it is, there's absolutely no correlation with the refluxate and a person's heartburn, then uh, going back to, they would be called functional heartburn. Unfortunately, there's a big population that is functional heartburn. Uh, so for those who fail an empiric trial, so in uh, 2012, ACG put out some guidelines for GERD management, and they said one month of uh, PPI daily, uh, if they fail that, take them to endoscopy. Now it's, this new update was in January 2020, said give them two months of a PPI single dose, single daily dose, um, for two months, you bring them back in two months, if they got better with the PPI, it confirms your diagnosis. You don't have to do the scope. If, however, in the next three months, they have recurrent symptoms, this guideline suggests going ahead and, and scoping them at that point to diagnose them. And that if they would say, be off the PPI for two to four weeks when you're doing that. Um, however, if in any point there is alarm symptoms, then you need to go ahead and convert from an empiric trial to doing the scope. Dr. Kelly, just to clarify, you said whenever you send them the scope, you want to make sure they're off their PPI for two to four weeks before. Um, I would keep them on their therapy. Just send, send it to me or a GI doc. They can do what they want and okay. take them off if they want to take them off. Because most likely you're right with your diagnosis that it is good and getting better. Say they, had, say they had severe good first and they're just still healing. So not everybody heals up in two months. Uh, you have to be aware of these alarm symptoms uh, because uh, they are a trigger for more urgent endoscopy. Unexplained weight loss or anorexia that's just going on and on and, and they're losing weight. Uh, dysphagia or, or gynophagia, that's a trigger. I did have a patient once, this was back in the day, probably. 10, 12 years ago that I went ahead. She was young enough. I put her on her PPI. See, she got better, but then she relapsed after that. I scoped her and she had a cancer. And it was a bizarre kind of thing. I thought it was a melanoma. She died of it. So 
that was my lesson in. Uh, don't guys go go ahead and scope them for dysphagia. Iron deficiency anemia, obviously, it, particularly in males and in postmenopausal females. Yes. So um, I saw this a couple of weeks ago. So it was a quick question that I had. Sometimes you get patients that hospital or in the emergency room where they have like typical anginal type of symptoms and they say I took a nitro and it felt better um, but sometimes with esophageal spasms you can get better with, with the nitroglycerin tablet as well and they have a history of good how would you like go about just teasing that out if they have a negative cardiac workup if they have a negative cardiac workup I would first ask myself do I trust that MPS mm -hmm. Yes. It was a rare patient, but it was an athlete that would run and at about two or three miles, he would get chest pain recurrently. So the MPS was negative, but we took him to cath and it was positive. They stented him and that went away. So that's one caveat I'd throw out. It's been more than three months. Uh, iron deficiency anemia, persistent vomiting, GI cancer in a first degree relative, and new onset dyspepsia in a 50 year old, 60 year old. These are the uh, documented alarm symptoms that we all need to really know. Pitfalls, uh, again, assuming GERD when CAD hasn't been ruled out, uh, not doing a workup for gestation within a few weeks. They say two weeks is ideal. Stopping PPIs in a patient with a history of previous peptic strictures or a history of dilation. So I have patients that have said, yeah, I used to be dilated every year. They'd have to dilate. But then if you get them on a PPI and keep them on a PPI, they don't have to be dilated every year. So here's the case you're going to see in the office. 56-year-old obese male with heartburn two to four times a week. Occasional nocturnal awakenings with bitter taste in his mouth and coughing. Uses Tom's with partial relief and no use of H2s or PPIs. So, uh, what additional history would you want? Family history. Family history, GI malignancy, okay. So, is it always after spicy food or after a large meal? Yeah, association with dietary items. I mean, dysphagia associated, any of the alarm symptoms, go through them all. And uh, he said he had partial relief of the so you're suspicious, suspicious that it's, it's reflux. And how are you going to treat it? Now, there's out there, it's step up, or um, who knows for step up? Step down. PPI down. As you know, it's four or five times stronger than an H2 in And you can step down from 40 of omeprazole to 20, 10, or an H2. Okay, that's what I would do because a lot of, I think patients will be more confident in you if you get their symptoms under control in a week and maybe take longer with an H2 block. Yeah. I've had patients, though, that are like, they don't want to come off or come down on the PPI because it really helped them. Like, how do you talk to them about that? Uh, then I always talk about uh, 
less is better, um, use the least amount for the long term because yeah, the drugs have been out for uh, 32 years, but still it's one of those things you use the least amount of medicine you need. How long do you keep, like, let's say you give them the PPI and it controls it really well. At what point do you transition them down to famotidine? I would, uh, at two to three months. So you want, want to make sure you have a routine follow-up. You just don't put them on it and say, nah, you're good. You want to follow up on this visit. Do you have to transition the famotidine? And then if, if so, how long? And is there a risk for rebound? Famotidine, if we stop with famotidine. There is. Um, so, okay, can I just take taper off PPI? I, I would prefer if you taper down the lowest dose PPI because there's no tachyphylaxis like there is with H2s. All right. Um, here's some guidelines avoid eating within three hours of bedtime, elevate the head of the bed with four to six inch blocks, or you can go online and find these wedge mattresses that you put underneath your mattress. It's a styrofoam wedge and it's six inches down to one. You can pull through your bed. And um, you should tell patients, don't prop your head up with just pillows because you're undoubtedly gonna bend at the waist that increases intragastric pressure and more reflux. Uh, dietary restrictions, you know, the, the usual chocolate, tomatoes, Garlic, onions, mints, caffeine, tobacco, all of it's bad. And then um, Xantex off the market, right? Because of the recall, um, concern of contaminants, and then PPI therapy. Here's a patient of mine, 74 year old active male with dysphagia, symptomatic for months with this dysphagia, trouble swallowing chunks of chicken and bread, no problems with liquids. And he denied heartburn and indigestion, no weight loss or anemia. Sent him for scope. He had LA class D esophagitis. So for some reason, some people are not that symptomatic from their reflux. Other people are hypersensitive. Uh, he was brought back for a second look a couple months later. Uh, there was smooth haptic stricture and it was dilated. And then he's on a meprazole for life. And I saw him, that was, 10, 15 years ago, I saw him recently, he forgot that he had had severe esophagitis. Are you sure that was me? <laughs> He's 84. Uh, you know, they forget what these good the medicines doing them. Okay, then we talk about this bucket called refractory GERD. So those are the ones that have none or incomplete response to uh, BID PPI. And um, that's pretty much a, a patient that's going to be managed by a gastroenterologist. Uh, but if you look in the up-to-date algorithm, it's first think about improper timing of dosing. So with all of the PPIs except for one, it needs to be 30 to 60 minutes before the first meal a day. And the first meal a day has to do with this enzyme that builds up and, and then is activated. It builds up over time. It builds up during a fast, so that's overnight. And then it's activated and turned off by the PPI when it's activated by the food. So you want it in your bloodstream when you eat. So 60 minutes is more ideal. But that's hard. 
who's going to time that? And they say that 40% of people don't time it right. So going back to, are you really compliant with this BID dosing or is there something else going on? And then uh, number three, there's delayed healing, severe esophagitis. So it can take up to three months to heal. I, I mentioned this already, 58% of non-responders have functional heartburn. And so in some pH studies, they suggest volume or consistency, whether or not it's thick or thin, uh, can and plays a role in their experience in heartburn. They don't know why they experience heartburn, but they have this visceral hypersensitivity. Um, if you have refractory GERD, you need to send them for endoscopy. Um, and if that's negative, that's when they get sent for the 24-hour impedance pH probe to help prove if the reflux is occurring and if it's acidic or basic. So uh, they have this at St. John, Maine. Uh, they don't allow me to order it. They say it's only gastroenterologist. And I think that's the reason is uh, the tech does the job, does a great job. And then he gives the results off to the GI doc and they sign off on it. I don't even know if they know how to read it, but he does. That's their catch all. They, they don't allow anybody else but the GI to sign off on those. Uh, interestingly, some patients have bile reflux. And you go in their stomach and it's rather than clear gastric juices, it's yellow greenish. And then that can come up in the esophagus and that would be a basic reflux. So I've seen one where one of the GI docs gave them ursodiol to decrease bile production. And there, there are some studies out there. But it would be a pH probe that would include that. Those functional heartburn patients, negative for reflux by pH, and you give them pain modulators as below. Cyclics, usually nortriptyline, then 20 milligrams at bedtime, where you give them SSRIs or trazodone or SNRIs. I, I guess in the conference I've been at, most people are using uh, venlafaxine. Then we have uh, esophageal hypersensitivity. Again, just to remind you of that, it's a positive impedance of acid reflux but it's physiologic reflux. It's not, um, and, they're, and they're getting heartburn with physiologic reflux. So you review the GI timing and compliance again, perhaps add a bedtime H2 blocker. You can add sodium alginate, which is, uh, is it, it causes a float on top of the acid pool in your stomach. It's like this gelatin that keeps the acid from actually going up in the esophagus because it's got this bed of almost waxy algae. That's made from algae. So think of green algae and it just has a coating. It's, that's how that works. Is that algae? Yeah. And it sits on top of your acid pool so it doesn't come up. And this is one time I've seen propofate added. Usually we don't use it at all except for so like does the sodium alginate have any other like symptoms like any problems with like diarrhea or malabsorption or like no i think it just goes through you but let's coat the stomach oh, anti-reflux surgery will help this because um, the patients are having reflux episodes and so if you tighten that up so that they don't have them you can 
cure it. And there's a procedure called the Strata procedure where they go down endoscopically and then put probes out around circumferentially and then put radio frequency there in the muscle layer to burn it. And then it becomes uh, more inelastic so that it doesn't open up. So it stays tighter. Yeah. Is there any benefit to sacralophate if they don't have proven ulcers? I've only seen it used or suggested to be used in pregnancy. Uh, first line is for GERD. PPIs are safe to exception one. Well, one is class C. Omeprazole is class C versus class B for the other ones. So you might start with in pregnant patients, but that's it. Is the strata better than like the Nissen on the application? Well, it'd be endoscopic and it'd be, in a sense, less invasive. But I don't know. I think that this is better. Okay. And then there's this uh, strange link between H. pylori and GERD. Um, in some patients, it depends on where the H. pylori infects the stomach. Okay. So if you have H. pylori all over the stomach, pangastritis, you give them and treat their H. pylori with antibiotics, their GERD might be worse because the H. pylori in the upper stomach will reduce acid overall, where if the H. pylori is in the antrum, it increases um, because down there, it's, it works on an inhibition loop and you actually get higher gastrin levels and you get more stomach acid produced. And that's why you get peptic ulcers in the duodenum when you have H. pylori of the antrum. But good news is 80% of patients have antral gastritis from H. pylori. So if you're a veteran guy, you can just go ahead and treat them. And 80% of the time, you're going to be right. And what does H. pylori cause in terms of cancer risk? Well, malt lymphoma and um, uh, also increases gastric adenocarcinoma, via the mechanism atrophic gastritis going into intestinal metaplasia, going into dysplasia and then cancer. So H. pylori um, can be bad. I'd say go ahead and treat it, I'll treat it, but um, it's not a bad place to throw it out. That uh, serology for H. pylori that through our lab don't do. In low prevalence uh, populations, like that's the US, where the population has less than 20% H. pylori, then a, then a positive is going to be falsely positive more times than not. And so you want to treat them and open them up to that antibiotics and muscle treatment for H. pylori. So you have to get a stool test. They have breath tests at St. Francis and also at GSI. Never ordered one over there, but I just ordered the stool test for H. pylori antigen. And the key about that is they have to be on antibiotics, PPIs, and peptidismol for uh, two weeks. Two weeks. And if, if you can't remember that, go under the reference information at RML. It'll tell you right there. Um, PPIs are used so much that I thought we would until we run out of time.
Basically, it blocks the proton pump of the parietal cell, so you have decreased acid production. These indications are up there, and, and I already talked about the other stuff. Except that, last line, maximum acid suppression is progressive over about five days. Whereas with H2s, you get a faster onset of treatment, uh, relief of heartburn. Like, for example, uh, H2s can help relief of heartburn with one or two hours. With PPI, it's three or four hours. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, here is my pearl about the best way. If you have a patient that just wants to use PRN PPIs, I said the best treatment for a random bout of troublesome reflux is a dose of liquid antacids, so Malox, Melanta, or Tums or Rolates, plus pop uh, Promotidine and pop an Omeprazole all at the same time. So you get a staggered benefit and then stay on the PPI for a couple of weeks. And because I feel like uh, there was a study out that two weeks at a time versus continuous use of PPI, you had less use of medications over the long run. Plus, I think it, it reminds the person, what am I doing to get in this situation? What am I eating? My bad habits, what am I doing? Am I drinking four cups of coffee a day? Because as a coffee drinker, I can do one cup of coffee a day and do fine. But if I drank three, I would have an indigestion in heartburn. Anybody else there? It's true. Then this. We've talked about the concern about taking it long-term. Uh, GI specialists tend to uh, uh, see protect it or suggest that the observational trials suggest possible association but can't prove causation because there's not randomized, randomized controls trials, but rather observational trials to say that these associations are there. But I think the data is pretty clear about the C. diff and the pneumonia in hospitalized patients. And we do use uh, omeprazole PPIs in um, ICU patients to prevent stress ulcers. And then after they come out of the ICU, they recommend to drop them down to uh, famotidine after that. And then there's the biggest question I have is whether or not there's renal dysfunction. But apparently one of the studies that suggests that there was renal dysfunction was a VA study and a lot of people were on NSAIDs and the PPIs were there to uh, as PUD prophylaxis. So how do you tease out the renal dysfunction that you're getting from NSAIDs? So there's a lot of unknowns um, and most people are on the camp of benefit versus uh, risk. And um, if you're not having much heartburn but you're developing memory problems, you probably ought to get off them. Use something else. Uh, here I talk about the lowest effective dose for somebody who needs to be on a prolonged. And uh, two blockers do have tachyphylaxis after two to four weeks. They just lose their effectiveness. You have to give them a drug holiday for them to be effective again. And you all probably get these refill requests like I do. They're on a Meprazole 90 refill times three. You go, I don't know. So I think we ought to be obligated to bring them in to the office, have that discussion at least once a year. How's your control? Do you need this much? Can you go to every other day so it's dosing or can we drop it down to lower dose? And then because there is uh, some concern about B12 
uh, and magnesium uh, deficiencies with chronic PPI use, go ahead and pull magnesium and B12 levels. All of us are doing that. I occasionally remember, but that's that's what I would recommend. There's, uh, of course, the brand versus generic uh, on any drug out there. That, that I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of difference. You know, when a, a uh, drug is considered a AB rated generic, it means that it is bioavailability is 80 to 120 percent of the brand name. Yeah, there's going to be some variability, but is there any clinical difference? And when they do head-to-head -head studies of all the PPIs out there, they say there's rarely clinical differences in effectiveness. So I use the cheapest one, which is omeprazole. Uh, different formulations. In our hospital, we have like uh, Protonix. Other hospitals, it's Nexium. There's ODTs, if you didn't know about it. Omeprazole, Lanzoprazole, they have ODTs. Then uh, Lanzoprazole has a suspension for uh, kids that need it. And remember, all the capsules can be broken. Daniel's put in some yogurt or something else to disguise the taste and eat it that way. Questions? Uh, let's talk about Dexalant. That has a dual release capsule. Actually, it's in the granules. There are two different types of granules. It touts that it has a longer duration of intragastric pH above four. So the idea, if it's above four, you'll get better healing, um, less erosions, ulcers. It peaks at two and a, one to two hours and also four to five hours, secondary two different types of granules that dissolve in a duodenum at a pH 5.5 right there in the early uh, or the proximal duodenum and in the distal uh, uh, ileum, then the pH is more like 6.75, which releases the second granule and then you get that absorption later. So you get dual phase release of the PPI suppression. And this came out, this was the last uh, PPI to come out in 2015. And you know, they think it's a cat's meow, but <laughs> you have to. And I've had one or two patients say, no, this is much better for me. So yeah, you don't fight them on that. And uh, in their packages, or it says you can take any time. You don't have to take it relative to 30 to 60 minutes before the meal. So that, that might be an advantage because we, we talked about only 40% compliance with that timing. And it, it also covers nighttime reflux really well. Do you have to do a prior off for that? Or like an expensive one? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, do you all use Hippocrates and then put in sooner care um, and see what it's, it's rated as? I'll do it right now. I know we'll do it for you sometimes too. I'll look that. We'll put it on Tier one or PA. Oh, how to interpret Okay, it's a tier two. Okay. So that means they have to fail two other meds? Um, no, it doesn't say prior off, it just says tier two. So I bet if they've been, probably get kicked back, it will say, what have they been on? <laughs> 